the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today i have the pleasure of being joined by nelson elhaj welcome nelson hey max pleasure to be here for our audience that don't know about Nelson, I'll give a brief intro, which is Nelson spent quite a few years at Stripe most recently, the mega popular online payments startup, I should say unicorn company now. For our audience that are curious about the types of stuff Nelson worked on there, we'll get to that in a moment. For our audience curious about your background, can you share a little bit of backstory, Nelson, about what led you to Stripe and what types of topics you're most interested in? Yeah, I've been interested in software or kind of one of those people who's been doing it practically as long as I can remember. I got, I got, was lucky enough to get started programming super young. Right out of college, I worked at a startup called Casebleice that was founded by some uh, friends of mine that did hot patching for the Linux kernel. So we were taking security updates to the Linux kernel by modifying running code without needing any downtime or disruption. Uh, while I was there, I met a bunch of people who then went on to go work at Stripe. And after Case Plus was acquired by Oracle, I stuck it out for a year. And then when I was looking around for places to join, I was really impressed both by the, the business and the sort of potential and ambition of Stripe and the people that I met there and the people that I knew who were already working there and everyone they met there. Uh, and I was at Stripe for seven years. Uh, and I recently left to take some time off and figure out what's next. I think I've, I'm interested in a lot of things in software. I think a lot of them fall under the bubble of sort of tools to build software or developer productivity and um, ways to, to improve the, the productivity or ease of software development. I worked at a lot of, I worked on a lot of different things over my time at Stripe, uh, spent a lot of time on the infrastructure team, building out things like the database layers, our routing, EC2 provisioning, all the kind of low level infrastructure, and also a lot of work on developer productivity in various ways. I worked on testing and our test framework and our test runner. Uh, repeatedly, I kind of kept, find myself kept coming back to that over the years as I was there. Uh, near the end of my time there, I spent a year uh, kicking off the Sorbet project, which is Stripe's uh, recently released gradual static type checker for Ruby, uh, somewhat in the style of MyPy for Python or Flow or TypeScript, if people are familiar with any of those for JavaScript, basically allowed us to incrementally add types and static type checking to our multi-million line Ruby application with the goal of improving developer productivity and just kind of developer confidence and ease of understanding and navigating the code base. Uh, we've released that as open source pretty recently and it's seen some pretty good adoption. So that was, that was a lot of fun to work on. So full transparency for, I know a lot of audience members ask me about kind of how I find guests and the way that I found and reached out to Nelson was Nelson had written some content for the Stripe blog about these specific, well, a subset of these specific topics he's interested in, specifically running huge test suites of uh, tests. So there were some numbers thrown around in that blog post, which I'll just cite very briefly. These numbers are super out of date, and I assume they're okay because they're already public, which is circa August 2015, quote, we have over 1,400 test files that define nearly 15,000 test cases and make over 130,000 assertions. According to the CI server at the time, four years ago, the tests would take over three hours if run sequentially. So for our audience to kick us off, 
the interesting problem here is with a software company that scales like Stripe has, you, you encounter some really interesting scaling problems. So for our audience that may not have read the blog post yet, and maybe are curious about this greater problem of what happens to organization of, you know, many engineers of a very mature code base, how did kind of Stripe's approach and, and your approach to tackling the huge test suite problem unfold? Yes, I guess to, to set the framework a little bit, Stripe had substantially a mono repo for our main application and the, the Stripe API, most of the, the backend support services that actually moved the money around and tracked money, the uh, dashboard that merchants used to interact with Stripe was all in one repository in a Ruby code base that was, was factored or arranged somewhat, but also had a lot of shared code. Stripe from even before I joined, and this was something I pushed on a lot, was a really big believer in testing and in continuous integration. We wrote automated unit tests for all of our features, all of our components, and we ran them on every push and we required a passing run for every merged master. And now as you grow, this results in running an awful lot of tests because Every feature generates more tests and also every developer is generating more test runs. And it's really important that tests results come back fairly quickly in order to uh, not speed, not slow down the development cycle too much. To give a little bit of a sense of the, the scale here, when I started at Stripe in 2012, we had a Jenkins, single Jenkins instance that ran tests in a single processor, a single thread. And it took maybe 10-ish minutes when I started, creeping up towards 15. One of my very first projects was to split that across two different processors on a single machine and cut the runtime about in half. Uh, in 2014, or whenever that blog post was, was published, if you'd run our tests in a single threaded process, it would have taken around three hours was the number I cited. I don't remember the exact numbers when I left, but it would have been something like multiple days to run the tests in a single threaded fashion. Uh, throughout this growth, we put in a lot of work using various optimizations and parallelism and distributed test runner to ensure that the actual wall clock time, the time between when you ran git push and you got back the test results on your branch, we targeted keeping that number at about 10 minutes. It would creep up a little bit. It would sometimes go down as low as five after a branch of optimization before it crept up. And we did this through a number of techniques, but largely just by throwing more compute at the problem, throwing more CPUs, more EC2 instances, more powerful instances, which wasn't cheap, but was we decided was well worth it because the confidence we got out of testing and the confidence it gave us to refactor and to move quickly and be optimistic that we weren't breaking any existing features was really valuable. And the ability to get tests back quickly meant that we were sort of using that feature, that it was feasible to require tests before merge, that developers ran tests frequently on branches and could come to trust them. Uh, we also did some work, and when I was leaving, there was more work in progress on doing, on selectively running tests, on looking at a diff and then doing some form of static or dynamic analysis to infer which test runs possibly could change results as a result of this change, you know, which tests which tests or which test files executed the changed lines and only running those. We had a simplistic version of that, and we were working on a more powerful one. 
But fundamentally, up until about the point I left, our main tool for, for maintaining this at scale was just throwing more CPU at it. I, I think this is a topic that illuminating for folks who might not work at larger software companies with a large software engineering team, the, each marginal minute that a software engineer is waiting for you know, their continuous integration run to finish is extremely expensive at scale. One thing that I kind of I'm kind of curious about is at a larger organization, just how much digging you would do to evaluate, you know, the marginal value of one minute saved on the test suite. Like, what? How did you guys come to the conclusion that ten minutes was the goal? Yeah, we we never had a super rigorous reason for the ten minutes. It was, although it was based a lot on on sort of feeling and anecdata data and actually and survey data of every six months, we would run a survey of all of engineers and ask them for their biggest pain points and the biggest things that they wanted to see improvement on. And we noticed pretty consistently a pattern that tests at around five minutes were perceived as very fast and no one kind of no one care no one was unhappy with how slow they were tests at 10 minutes people weren't thrilled about but it also didn't tend to show up in the list of things that people would complain about they would complain about their, if whatever else was wrong would would almost always be a more a, a bigger priority in terms of people's subjective experience of development around the 10 minute mark and when it crept beyond that people would report I feel like I'm spending all of my time waiting on tests. I feel like tests are really blocking my productivity. So that was that was one way that we arrived at the 10 minute mark. Another technique that we used intermittently, although we never we never used it as our sole mechanism, was once we had a parallelized test runner, we had this knob we could turn where we could throw more more computers at each individual test run and tests would get faster although only to a point because you can't get faster than your slowest individual tests and you can't get faster than the fixed setup time that's needed before you start running individual tests so we could throw more compute and tests would get faster but it was diminishing returns and so there's this question of how do you decide the right money versus time trade-off and as one tool, although again, not the only one, we actually worked with the finance team to produce an estimate of the total fully loaded cost to Stripe of an engineer. What is what is an engineer's cost? What is an engineer's time cost in terms of salary, benefits, et cetera, everything else we're paying them? And we also worked with, with finances and the other planning teams to produce a, the, the opportunity cost of an engineer, of, of what is the possible benefit of time an engineer could be spending, which is more than what they cost of kind of, if an engineer spent this much time building a feature, how much would that potentially be worth to us? And that gives us two numbers that literally give you a dollar value on what does a minute of an engineer's time cost. And I think it's very dangerous to lean too hard into these numbers because I think these things are both fungible and non-fungible in weird ways. And literally a minute of an engineer's time can go to a lot of different ways. And if tests take a minute and that engineer spends that minute uh, thinking or working productively on background jobs, it's not really a lost minute. But that gives us two framework numbers of, of here's how to quantify. And then we can compare that across, against the cost of CI 
And in this case, where we where we do again have that literal knob we can turn that trades off minutes against time, it's useful to have some other concrete benchmarks that are in the form of dollars per minute that we can use to say, are we in the right ballpark of how much we're spending? Or if we're spending drastically less than our lowest estimate for the cost of an engineer's time, then it's probably worth turning farther. If we're way on the other side, it's worth turning back. So circa uh, 2015, you mentioned 14,000 test files, I believe, and nearly 15,000 test cases. And that was four years ago. Not naming numbers these days, but one can imagine that there were a lot of tests in that test suite. You alluded to if you get total parallelization of your tests, your test suite becomes running as long as your slowest test. So with such a large test suite, I'd imagine there were a lot of tests that we're on the, I guess, extreme end of uh, how long they take to run, and also a fair amount that were flapping or flaky. So when it comes to policing such a large test suite, um, how, how would the software engineering team at Stripe kind of uh, prioritize bringing down the extremes in the, in the test suite that were either really flaky or really slow? Yeah, I think that those are those are excellent questions, and those are both problems that we spent a lot of time on. I think I'll start with a couple of general observations, which is one is that this is ultimately a, a combination of an organizational and a technical problem, because engineers all across the organization are writing these tests, and it's not scalable or maintainable to have one team that kind of acts as their janitor and says, ah, oh, that test is flaky. It is our job to go understand and fix some other team's flaky test. And also it's not even scalable for one team to say, ah, oh, this is a flaky test. Like, let me go badger that other team. That, that, that creates this, this constant stream of negative interactions. And so you end up needing to build technical at scale, building technical systems that identify these things or allow humans to identify these, take automated action in some way that shifts the incentive back onto whoever owns the tests to do something about it. In practice, what this often means is if a test is detected to be undesirable in some way, if it's too slow or it's flaky, we start automatically skipping that test and we file a ticket or otherwise notify the team that owns it and be like, hey, you're not, this test isn't getting run anymore. If you want this test to get run, it's on you to fix it. Mm. And this, uh, this has the risk that if that team doesn't action this and these tests are just flaky, and or let's say that let's say a test is disabled due to a system like this and then someone else makes a change that breaks the feature that was tested and no one notices because it wasn't tested there's this sort of organizational problem of of when you go to do the post-mortem about that or when you do the informal conversations uh what do you what do you describe as the narrative or as the cause of this uh stripe was very deliberate about uh having blameless postmortems. So I don't want to say who do you blame or even what is the kind of root cause? Cause we, we believed that incidents are complex multifaceted events that don't, don't fit into single narratives, but what's the culture of how do you talk about what went wrong so that we can do it next? And one thing that we really aspired to at Stripe is this culture of if your system broke, and you didn't have tests for that system, or you had tests, but they were skipped and you knew they were getting skipped, 
The problem was that you didn't have tests. The problem wasn't that someone else broke your system or that the or that the test infrastructure shut you down. If the test infrastructure shut you down and notified you, it's kind of your problem. The onus is on you to deal with it. If you want a feature to continue working, you have to maintain and build the tests for it. And that's a kind of cultural-wide norm that you have to fight to maintain, and it helps to have leaders and senior engineers who believe in it and communicate it and express it. But if you can get there, then you can build systems. And we had a couple of these one was if any individual test was running longer than some fixed timeout, and we, we changed that timeout over time, I forget where it was, but maybe it was two minutes. If any test runs over two minutes, just unconditionally fail that test. That test is failing. And if it's doing this persistently, just start skipping that test. Maintain, maintain state and track st state across runs. Similarly for flaky tests, if any test failed, we would actually retry that test up to three times in every CI run. And if it succeeded on any of those three runs, we would mark the overall run as successful, but we would tag that test as flaky. And if a test is persistently flaking, we'll just skip it. We won't start, we won't try running it at all because running three times helps mask flakes, but it also means that the run is slower and it means that you'll still get some persistent failures because if the test fails, you know, 10% of the time and you run it three times, you're going to get a failure overall, something like one every thousand runs. And in a team with about a thousand engineers, that actually happens pretty frequently. And so even lowering the flake rate there doesn't help if you don't also have mechanisms that notice these patterns, identify this as flaky and skip it and file an issue with the team. We also gave developers tools to notify us on test results to say, I'm, I've looked at it and I'm confident that this test failure is unrelated to my change. Please notify the system. And you can use a combination of manually triaging those reports or use, using some simple aggregates of if you see that on a bunch of places, this test is flaky, disable it, push it to the team that owns it. I, I want to step back for a second to what you mentioned earlier relating to surveying the team and collecting broad feedback about what's working, what's not working on a periodic basis. I, I think a lot of organizations and a lot of, you know, CTOs or, or VPs of engineering or SRE teams, like they may not be practicing this uh, surveying of their own teams around what is, what are their pain points? So just, I mean, you, you may not think this is of tremendous interest, but like, how did you, how, who came up with that idea? How did it gain adoption? And what was kind of the, the adoption rate of the engineering surveys that you guys used to help guide your decision-making? Yeah, I don't remember exactly how we kicked off the idea, but I think that it, it, it came from a place that was a recurring theme anytime we met with developer productivity teams at other organizations, which was the question of how do you measure productivity or kind of one step away, how do you know whether your developer productivity team is doing a good job? Because presumably you believe that if you're building good tools, supporting your engineers, they're going to be more productive. But that's really hard to measure because 
productivity is very nebulous, different kinds of work, such as maintaining features, building new features, building different kinds of new features have different challenges. And so it's hard to directly compare productivity. Really, no one we talked to ultimately had a good metric of just like, how do you measure developer productivity? Which if you did, then you kind of, the goal of your developer productivity team is just make that number go up. But lacking that, we thought and talked to other people and struggled of to come up with, can we have some somewhat unified top level theory of how do we know if we are doing the right things, if we are improving the lives and the productivity of developers in the organization. And one idea that we came up with or borrowed from somewhere else was to ask them to run a survey. And we ran a survey every six months. We, we ran it pretty, we ran it regularly every six months. We actually worked with a couple of internal teams or internal, uh, Stripe employees who had expertise in designing surveys and sort of in surveying audiences and methodologies here. We asked a mix of quantitative numeric questions of things like just how satisfied are you with your productivity at Stripe one to five? How does your productivity at Stripe compare to your previous job one to five? Uh, a couple of others that I'm forgetting, and also a group of more open-ended qualitative questions of what are your biggest pain points? What are some of your favorite tools? What do you wish that we would work on most? And we would track over time, both the numeric results to, because that gives you some top level sense of, are you improving or getting worse over time? And also multiple engineers and managers on the developer productivity team would review every single free text answer and summarize them into a number of buckets of, you know, these are the issues that are coming up a lot this half. These are the things that used to be an issue and have dropped off. Let's pat ourselves on the back. That usually means we've done something to make them go away. And we, we definitely, it's, it's a frustratingly kind of slow and fuzzy signal because you get it every six months, but we really did find that it gave us good visibility. It often tracked with our intuition, but often, but not always. And it also really helped build trust and a rapport with the rest of engineering. When you can point to, we ran the survey, these are the things that you told us that our roadmap for the next six months is addressing the top three things in this way. And then in six months, you can say, you know, last six months, this is what we said we were going to do. This is the pain points we heard. These are the things we've done to fix it. These three pain points have now shown up 25% less in this survey. That helps help that kind of helps sell people that even if you're not necessarily working on their particular pain point, because in a large organization, a lot of people are going to have a lot of different demands and requests for you. You can kind of visibly and transparently show we are working on the things that our users want us to work on, that our developers need us to work on in a way that helps not only your internal prioritization, but build confidence and build trust within the organization in a way that's really important for developer tools teams to have. Gotcha. Gotcha. So speaking of specific needs, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but starting with Ruby and Ruby on Rails, actually, I'm not even sure if Ruby on Rails was the initial framework that Stripe used, but um, speaking of Ruby, you mentioned survey. So for our audience members that uh, may need a little bit more description about what sorbet exactly is. Um, what, what is it? And also, 
how did it arise? Did it was it driven from the survey-based feedback, or or was there one production incident in particular? How did how did the idea to create a static type checker for Ruby as an open source project within Stripe, you know, initiate? Yep. Uh, so just one quick note to uh, an aside you put there. Stripe is not built on Rails, although we are built on Ruby, uh, which is a slightly unusual combination, but one that I think worked out pretty well for us. Uh, back to Sorbet. So Sorbet is a gradual static type system for Ruby. So it's a static type system, which Ruby, for if, if listeners aren't familiar, is a dynamically typed language in the somewhat like Python or JavaScript, where when you're writing code, you don't have to declare the types of any variables or functions. You don't have to say this is an integer, this is a string, or this is a list or whatever. It just You just write your code and the, the runtime figures it out at runtime. Sorbet is a static type system, which means that it allows you to declare types statically on top of Ruby. You can write your Ruby code and you can say, oh, and also this function accepts an integer and returns an integer. And Sorbet will check those types both at runtime. It'll actually augment your code with runtime checks to if, if that function is called with a string instead of an integer, it will raise an exception. And statically to have a compile-like phase where we actually go through and do static type checking in a way somewhat similar to a language like Java might do on your code and check types before you run any of your code. And it's kind of interesting. One thing that's interesting to me about Sorbet is when I talk to people, they often ask the question you just did of, of was there an incident that led to this? Was this your, was your goal to prevent incidents? How many incidents did this prevent? And that honestly wasn't really our motivation for building it. It was, it was a motivation and, and we hope it prevented incidents and we, we did track as we were building it incidents that might've been prevented by it. But really, it was much more about de broader developer experience and productivity and ease of understanding code of our experience. And this was the experience of, of many senior engineers at Stripe. And especially, we had a contingent of Facebook engineers who had worked at Facebook while Facebook deployed Hack, their type system for PHP who noted that once you get to a large code base with a large number of engineers, most of the code that you're interacting with is not code that you yourself wrote or even necessarily code that you yourself particularly understand or work in. And at that point, having types on code makes it a lot easier to kind of get your footing in foreign code more quickly. You never have to wonder, oh, is this a parameter, a merchant ID or a merchant object? Does this thing need a string or an integer? What do I have to pass this? Types give you a little bit of a faster way to understand code and to get confidence that your code is working faster. And the type checker can run much faster than the test suite as well and give you some initial confidence that you are using other people's code correctly, other people are using your code correctly. And so, it th that that aspect of it of just making it easier to find your way around a large code base with lots of teams and lots of engineers collaborating and give you a faster way to get initial feedback on your code than tests were really stronger motivations than the production safety one although that also was a component of it survey was driven largely 
not initially based on feedback on, from the survey, although once we floated the idea, we tended to get quite positive feedback, but it was largely driven, like I mentioned, by some of those engineers from Facebook who had, including one engineer, Paul Tarjan, who had worked on Hack at Facebook before coming to Stripe, who just spoke in, in glowing terms about how much of a step function it was for them in the developer productivity at Facebook, where once people were able to add types, the code got easier to understand, the code got simpler, people got much more confident, the feedback loops got faster. And so it was a small number of those engineers combined with some senior engineers at Stripe, including myself, who really just kind of, I think, largely just deeply believed in the idea based on experience in reading rather than on something we could necessarily directly prove based on survey data or otherwise. And we put three engineers on the project and built it out from scratch over the course of a year, including deploying it internally, adding type annotations to a lot of code internally, integrating it into CI, integrating it into people's workflows. Um, and we, we found that it was tremendously successful. Reviews internally, once we rolled it out, were almost universally glowing. People felt that we had achieved our goals, that the code was easier to understand, that it was more pleasant to work in typed code. People had more confident in making changes. The type checker gave them faster feedback than tests. I do think it's worth touching on that, that performance topic there. Uh, because one thing, one argument I sometimes hear is that even with static type checking, you still need tests. And if you need tests anyways, you're kind of, you're duplicating work. I hear that argument sometimes. And it's right in that even with static types, you need tests. Stripe had a very extensive test suite and that test suite did not really get smaller in any way with Sorbet. But one thing that it misses, in, at least in some ways, is that in large code bases, types can be, type checking can be much, much faster than running the test suite. Sorbet could do a complete type check of Stripe's multi-million line code base from a cold start in about 10 seconds. And with the benefit of some caching and a incremental daemon-based mode that we ran, we could type check many changes in milliseconds. And we eventually, Stripe has uh, an editor integration for Sorbet that uses the language server protocol in VS Code that type checks code as you run in the, in the style of many IDEs if people have used the, the Java IDEs, for instance. So we can give you type checking feedback literally as you type of, oh no, you passed the wrong type to that parameter, or you mistyped this name. It's not a guarantee that your code is correctness is correct. Obviously, there's a large class of errors that you can still make, but getting you any feedback at all and getting you reasonably good feedback that there's a whole class of mistakes you haven't made literally as you type or at the slowest 10 seconds after you save your file is such a drastic difference compared to the 10 minutes it might take to run the full test suite or even individual tests often take 10 seconds to run. And so the speed of feedback was really something we were aiming for in Sorbet and achieved and that people really appreciated. On this topic of build performance and increment, incrementality, uh, you were mentioning earlier about getting starting to get into it for a really large Ruby test suite, um, but I would be remiss if we didn't also discuss some of the state-of-the-art tools that are coming out of Facebook and Google, uh, Buck and open source Bazel, both open source, uh, but both aim to provide, you know, 
incremental builds by requiring really explicit uh, dependency declarations. So um, if your build requires certain files, you must declare what those files are so that Buck or Bazel can uh, create uh, a kind of build dependency tree. And given a build dependency tree, uh, not only can you only build the parts that uh, have changed from when the last build was performed or anyone else had performed a build, but you can also parallelize everything uh, with confidence that the things that are run in parallel won't run without missing dependencies. Um, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your take on these open source technologies and uh, whether you see a future in which Stripe open source is something or those two tools you know, consume the world and become super popular. What's your take on which tool might have it right the most? Yeah, so I've I've never personally worked with Buck, so I can't directly comment on that. Although my understanding is it's it's largely was designed as an open source re-implementation of Google's Blaze before Blaze went open source as Bazel. So I assume it works substantially the same. For for Bazel, which is Google's open source build system that's a, a sort of spin-off of their internal Blaze, Stripe was a, a heavy Bazel user. And essentially all of our non-Ruby code at Stripe, uh, which was primarily Go and Scala, which we, we used for different purposes, was built using Bazel. And we had active, active contributors to both Bazel itself and to the, the various rules that, were that, that are used to, to build specific languages and specific systems in Bazel. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about the future of build tools like Bazel and Buck. Uh, I think they the the basic principle of of setting up a dependency graph and parallelizing builds is is an old one. It goes back at least to the good old Unix Make tool. I think the biggest difference that I know with about Bazel is that it really goes to the next level to try to guarantee that your rules are correct and complete that you actually declare all of your dependencies. It actually, by default, runs builds in a sandbox where literally the only files they have access to are the declared ones. With make, if you accidentally omit a dependency, the build will tend to work. Just incremental rebuilds may happen incorrectly because it, it, it doesn't know that this dependency was there, so it won't know to rerun a rule. In a lot of ways, Bazel just really obsessively works to make that, if not impossible, at least very difficult. And it also does a lot of work to try to make builds deterministic so that if you run the same build step multiple times, you get the same output, which has a lot of nice properties for caching and distributed and rebuilds. So, and then on top of that, Google has built and is building more infrastructure for distributed caches on top of Bazel so that multiple nodes can run the same build and use a remote object store to cache intermediate results and remote execution so that you can define your build on one node and then actually ship the individual parts of computation off to a remote host or remote servers in the cloud. And so it gives you this uniform way to express your build and you can run it locally, you can run parts of it locally, but you can also run it. You can even, even some environments have it set up so that your laptop, when you run Bazel build, actually all of the work happens on a cloud compute environment. 
Uh, Google has, I believe, Google Cloud, I think, has an offering right now of a build farm that one can use. And there's also all the pieces are available to build your own. And Stripe was pretty heavily invested in this, this ecosystem. We used it for all of our Go and Scala code. And it it's not without hiccups because it has some kind of impedance mismatches and differences of opinion with languages, native build systems, and there's some work that you have to do. But we found the operational aspects of having a uniform way to express our build and being able to do fine-grained caching and we were working on adopting remote execution in CI to be worth the benefit. Uh, that said, we, as of when I left, we had not really used Bazel to build our Ruby code uh, for a combination of technical reasons. Some of them historical artifacts and some of them somewhat fundamental way, parts of the way that our Ruby dependency graph was deeply intertwined and often circular of you'd have circular dependencies where module A depends on B and B depends on A. A tool like Bazel that relies on having a strict uh, acyclic graph of dependencies can't easily handle those without having just a single very large, large targets and then you lose your incrementality. Whereas we were able to build custom tooling that had a deeper understanding of our Ruby code or the Ruby environment or the, the test framework that let us harness testing and uh, incremental testing and parallelism at much finer grained, uh, finer granularity than we would have been able to with Bazel. There was continual talk about trying, about ways to explore exposing these tools to Bazel and and being able to unite those tools, but we we weren't making much progress on them and it seemed like a hard problem as of when I left. Totally, yeah, no, I, I myself, personal experience wise, haven't played a great deal with either Bazel or Buck. But for the use case of maybe Bazel with Ruby, even though it's an interpreted language, Ruby, you still get the benefits of incrementality. Like you said, the, the issue of circular dependency means you might end up with an enormous singular quote unquote module uh, where you lose all of that incrementality benefits that those tools advertise. I'm, I'm kind of curious if there are ways to tackle that circular dependency issue and break down those circular dependencies. I realize it can be a really expensive and also really error-prone process maybe to try and break those circular dependencies, but is that a route that you imagine larger orgs tackling if they want to get incrementality? Like how, how might uh, somebody with a large interpreted code base that has these circular dependencies approach, you know, finding a more uh, <laughs> acyclic structure to their code base? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it always seems like a good idea to try to break those dependencies. Every organization I've talked to with a, like a large, somewhat legacy, organically grown interpreted code base finds that they have a lot of, that, that some of the cyclic dependencies are, are easy to break and are just sort of a simple question of moving bits around. But also there's just a lot of them. And also some of them tend to be very deep or are parts of, are, or are deeply related to idiomatic patterns in their, in the libraries that they're using or that they've built in a way that are hard to build, uh, that, are, that, are, that are hard to break. You, you can always break them, but sometimes they require somewhat invasive refactors. 
We did build pretty sophisticated tools based both on Sorbet and on some earlier static analysis tools we did to understand these dependency graphs and help visualize them and help kind of visualize as well the the most heck uh unfortunate dependencies the dependencies that if you could just remove this one reference it would split apart these two very large components and our test suite and eventually our static checking gave us reasonably good confidence to do these refactors and if tests passed if sorbet passed and then of course we had gradual rollout and safe rollout processes in production so we could run these with confidence but it was a lot of work and I think it would, my personal suspicion is that the total work to refactor the code base into small enough modules to, that are all acyclic would just be an enormous amount of work and would also impose a bit of an ongoing tax on the organization in requiring you to write code in unenigmatic ways or in somewhat more verbose ways. And so instead we chose to for the case of Ruby, because this was our main application, this is the API, this is the thing that that is Stripe's business, it was worth just doing dedicated work to write specialized tools that understood that particular uh, environment and that particular project that allowed us to do more dynamic parallelism and configuration and incrementality. Um, I would love if we could get away from that but i i wasn't really i was never quite clear on on how we would do that in a in a, in a feasible path at an acceptable cost so this next topic is emotional for some monorepo versus multi-repo i realize there's a great deal of trade-offs to these two approaches to organizing code but you st let's say you start a company tomorrow or you join a team tomorrow what, what's kind of your general advice to people who are you know, doubting themselves or, or at a decision point about, should we go with a monorepo or multi-repo solution to organizing our code? So I'm, I'm a really big fan of monorepos. I, my own opinions have changed a little bit over time, but by the last couple of years at Stripe, I, along with several others, were pretty, pretty enthusiastic about converging towards as few repositories as possible. Uh, it does require a lot of tooling investment, something you see dealing with CI and dealing with the, the expense and time of running tests before merges requires effort. This is one of the places where I'm really excited for tools like Bazel that will that let you have a monorepo and they'll do a lot of the test incrementality for you so that you can get fast test runs even with a monorepo. But ultimately, the thing that I'm really excited with about the monorepo is that it enables large-scale cross-cutting refactors and the development of features that span components with much, much more ease than many repo situations. Because you can make a change and then you can just run one test run that tests not only the change to that component, but all of the dependencies of that component and you can you can also make coupled changes across component. If you're working on some core library that a lot of different services use, and you want to change the API in some breaking way, you can make as one pull request as one change set that change and the change to your dependencies. You can test them. You can deploy them as one. 
And so it really gives you a lot of velocity for features that, that span interface boundaries, for development that spans interface boundaries. It enables your core tools teams to be a lot more productive because it makes it easier to have widely used libraries that get a lot of development because it's easy to make changes and then run all of your users' tests because they're all just there in that repository. And so it means that your tools teams can be more productive, can build better tools, build better libraries. And in my experience, it, it really pre it, it prevents or at least helps to combat this sort of ossification of your core layers and interfaces, where if you keep your, your if you keep things at arm's length, you have separate repositories, you allow your users to update uh, update their dependencies on their own schedules. It's really hard to get users to update. If they don't update for six months, then updating a dependency involves slogging through six months of possibly incompatible or even accidentally incompatible changes. And so you end up with this pattern where the interface boundaries between components get really set in stone and hard to change and where core libraries get rarely updated and get really hard to update. And you end up with all of these components that people are terrified to touch because they don't know who their dependencies are. They don't know which parts are depended on by who. And that sometimes makes some individual services move faster in the short term, but leads to this environment where you have all of these things that are very brittle and hard to change. And I think if you really invest in a monorepo and you do have to invest in the tooling, you have to invest in CI, you have to invest in the norms of testing and of people writing and maintaining their own tests. But if you do that work, it gives you a lot of freedom to have these highly leveraged tools teams that make everyone's lives better, to run mass refactors in a way that you upgrade everyone to the newest version of some library you're using on or to the some idiom that the new version of your dependency gives you access to. One team can run that upgrade in a very cross-cutting fashion and have with relative ease and have confidence that it works. And so it really helps your whole system evolve forward in a much more flexible way and, and helps combat the tendency of things near the root of your dependency chain to just get frozen in time forever. That makes a ton of sense. And I, I can kind of imagine other partner teams like security, like compliance. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, developer productivity. But yeah, the the idea of trying to scan a lot of repos versus, you know, having one repo. There's, there's a lot of, uh, simplicity to, to the mono repo approach for sure. Yeah. So security and compliance are two I forgot, but they are, they are other teams and th those kinds of cross cutting teams that, that have concerns across all or many of your products or of your code bases, they really benefit from a mono repo because they have one place that they can go to find code with one set of dependencies and, a smaller set of idioms and patterns. They can write one static analysis tool for the security team, can write maybe one, you know, SQL injection detector and run it across the entire code base. And they all they all get much more highly leveraged. Totally. Uh, one other benefit that I, I also forgot to mention is it helps aid onboarding new developers and moving developers between teams to have a kind of uniform environment where things mostly work the same across the whole organization. Because if everything is in the same repository, 
it's also easier to contribute patches to another team or to move to another team. And so that also helps contribute to the sense of interconnection and of everyone understanding how each other works and, and what the pieces are. Totally, totally. I want to wrap by giving a shout out to Nelson's blog. Uh, I'll obviously include links on the episode page on the website, theaxelengineer.com. But for people who are curious further about these topics, Nelson writes about it on his awesome blog. Uh, I'll also link to his previous posts on the Stripe blog. Uh, for people who are kind of curious about getting a hold of you, maybe asking you direct questions, how do you how do you recommend doing that, Nelson? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Nelhage, N-E-L-H-A-G-E. And my personal website is nelhage.com, which also has all kinds of other contact information for me. Awesome, dude. Thank you for coming on, Nelson. It's been awesome chatting with you. Thank you. It's been a fun chat. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.